but nevertheless, that is a common ailment, right? That we come, we prepare for this day of worship, and, and nevertheless, we find week after week that there is some distraction, some hindrance, some anchor that weighs us down. And so when we come into this place, though sometimes we are ready and sometimes we are transported out of ourselves and we see that glimpse of heaven that we hoped to see, that we have seen in ages past, that we've seen in services past, nevertheless we are discouraged because this week perhaps, this week I don't feel like worshiping God. But God's call comes nonetheless, oh come. Let us sing to the Lord. God's call comes to those who can sing and who can't sing. It comes to those who are ready and who are weary. It comes to those who are righteous, and it comes to the sinners who have struggled for the whole week to maintain faithfulness to the Lord our God. It comes to us, and this call calls us out of ourselves and into God's presence that we might worship Him And the choice that is before us every Sunday and indeed throughout the week as we struggle, as we wander in the wilderness, the struggle that is before us, the conflict that that is before us is this. Will you worship or will you wallow? Those are the two choices that God gives Christians, that God gives followers of Jesus Christ. You either worship in the wilderness or you wander there. You either worship the Lord God or you wallow in your sins. It's a stark contrast. It's a sobering one. It's at the heart of this psalm. Perhaps you noticed the change of tune, the change of tone halfway through the psalm. I left the little uh, verse idiosyncrasy there uh, in 7c and 8. The tone changes from one of glorious transport to sobering reminder of the temptation of the flesh to wallow in its sin. This psalm is both a call to worship and a warning for us, and so we want to consider both sides of that coin, both sides of the tension. Will we worship or will we wallow? Let's go in order, shall we? Uh, Moving verse by verse through the psalm and first considering what God would have us to consider about His worship. What does it mean to worship? And then second, we'll look at what it means to wallow. First then, what does it mean to worship? What does worship look like? Not just Sunday worship, although specifically this psalm is a call to Sabbath worship. It is a call to the corporate body of Christ, the corporate people of God to worship His name, and yet the words here apply to every moment in which our hearts sing out with joy to God. What does it mean to worship? Well, I'd like to ask three questions as we proceed through this psalm about worship. This psalm gives us three questions that perhaps you did not, answers to three questions that perhaps you did not ask. Who we worship, how we worship, and when we worship. So as we consider worship together, we're going to look at who, how, and when. You're probably expecting a very easy answer to the question of who, and in fact, the answer is quite simple. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. 
The Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. It's the Lord God that we come to worship and none other. This call to worship is a call for those who acknowledge the Lord God as the God, the God of heaven and earth. And we worship him as this psalm comes to express. We worship him for who he is and for what he has done. The alternative, as we've always already suggested, is to wallow. And though that's a call specifically to Christians, we consider, can consider here at the point of who we worship, that the alternative to worshiping God is not atheism. It's not, that is to say, not worshiping. The alternative to worship is not a failure to worship, but to worship, as Paul tells us in Romans 1, everything else. The alternative to worshiping God, the Father, who is a king above all gods, is to worship one of the other gods. We are built for worship. We are made for this purpose. And in our lives, we live that out. You have a hero. You have someone you look up to. You, it may be yourself. You may be kind of a self-conceited, narcissistic individual. So it may be yourself. You may be the hero of your own story. But we all have something or somebody or some pleasure that we worship. And already, we can make this point. That the psalmist doesn't directly reflect on this, but we can make this point that a failure to worship God results in a restless, unsatisfied life. You worship something, and that something will always disappoint you, will always disappoint you. Many of you have already experienced that. You've had some hero, some childhood hero. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was, I hear some people are kind of into sports, so maybe it was a sports figure or something. You had some hero, and they disappointed you. You realize that they weren't worth your time you realize that they weren't the person you thought that they would be. They disappointed you. Only the king of gods is God indeed. We are polytheistic people. We worship at many altars, and they will all disappoint. And you'll have to find something new to worship, and the result will be a restless anxiety. But if you worship the one true God, you worship the one who is king above all gods. Now that language, verse 3, might sound polytheistic, and that's intentional. The author of the psalm is writing into a polytheistic world. He's writing into a world which uh, the common man, the common assumption is that there are many gods, but the Jewish God is not like the other gods. He is the king of all gods. He is the king of heaven and earth. Notice how uh, the author expresses this kingship, this rule. Uh, the, the, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The sea is his, for he made it. If you lived and walked in the ancient world, you would have thought instinctively of the sea as this untamable monstrosity. Not even gods, the gods can tame the sea. Not even the gods can look into the depths of the earth. It is full of darkness and mystery. It is untamable. And yet the psalmist looks at this and he says, but our God is the God of the sea. Our God is the God of the depths. 
Our God is a great king above all gods. When the psalmist, when he answers this question, who we worship, the God that, whose feet we sit at, whose throne we kneel before, he doesn't just focus on who God is. This isn't an abstract philosophy lesson. You're not sitting at the feet of Plato and, and thinking about the, the unmoved mover. It's not just his nature that you're considering. It's not just his character that we're called to reflect upon, but his work. What did he do? <clears throat> he is the king of the gods. He is the king of heaven and earth. Everything is under him. There is nothing that is not subject to him and to his Christ. But more than this, he's been good to you. He has done great things. It's not just who he is. It's what he has done. He is the creator. Everything is the work of his hand. And it's not only the work that his hands formed, it's the work that his hands hold. He holds the work of creation in his hands. He sustains all things, and he, and he tells you to which all things tend, even though the world is cursed, even though there are hurricanes and tornadoes and great catastrophes that fall upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike, even though the world seems like a dark place, he tells you that it is all, this present groaning is all going to glory. He will restore the world to its proper function. He will bring it into glory, the same glory into which he has brought his son Christ. He formed the whole world. And as the song says, he holds it in his hands. More than this, we come and we worship the rock of our salvation. This is the great mystery of godliness. It's the great mystery of Scripture that this world which is cursed because of us will be redeemed from that curse, and yet the people of God will not be cursed. The world will be restored from the curse into which we plunged it, and yet those who confess their sins and look to Christ are forgiven. This is the great mystery that it is our fault that the world is the way it is. And yet, God, because of His mercy and love and kindness, saves us from it and doesn't condemn us to it. He doesn't leave us here to decay and to rot as the rest of the world decays and rots at our hands. But He plants into all those who believe a spirit, Christ's own spirit, which brings about new creation, even in us. We worship the God, the God who is the creator of heaven and, the, and earth, the God who saved his people. How then should his people worship, them, worship him? Again, our psalm gives us a lot of instruction in this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. What should our worship look like? How should we worship? Well, it should be loud. It should be boisterous. It should be like that great cheer when your favorite team comes onto the field. It should be like that uh, boisterous noise that we make when our side claims the victory. It should be full of a, 
of joyful noise. It should be loud. Now, our worship isn't always loud. Silence is an appropriate response when one is before the throne of God. Remember Mary. Mary stores these things up in her heart. She contemplates them before the Lord. Fear is an appropriate response when we approach the throne of God. Israel trembles at the mountain of Sinai. But I'd submit to you that the most appropriate response, the, the, the response to which all worship tends is this, joyful noise. It's the noise of victory. And as we progress in this world, as we wander in this wilderness, there are times when our hearts confound us. There are times when we can only be silent. But we know that even at those times, our hearts are, going, are building, are preparing themselves for the joyful noise of victory that we will receive when we see Christ again. Biblical worship is noisy worship. What else? Biblical worship bows the knee. Notice in verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. You have little kneeling racks there for you. We rarely use them because we're Presbyterians. But that is an appropriate response to, to feel the weight of the glory of God and to bow down before it. We offer homage. It is the, the, to kneel is to offer submission. It is to recognize that one greater than you is in the room, that one more important, more significant, more glorious than you is in the room, and to offer fealty and service. When we come to worship, tired though we might be, we come not, not primarily to get something from God. Now, God always responds. God always answers. We always do receive something from God. But the purpose of our worship is homage, it's service. We come recognizing that God doesn't owe us something, but that we owe something to God. It comes, we come to worship bowing the knee, not with a list of wants. We come glad to receive, joyful that we have received. And yet we come to offer service. We come also with humility and trust. He is our God, verse 7. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. The psalmist often speaks in metaphors. It's good for us to think in these terms because, you know, we have hands and, we think, and, and feet and uh, some of us are strong and some of us are smart and some of us think we have something to offer to God and the psalmist comes to us with this metaphor, you are sheep in his hand. The proper response in worship is to recognize that, to recognize that we are but sheep and he is our shepherd. It's a function of homage, it's a function of service, but it's not just he is our ruler, but he is our caretaker. When we bow the knee, we recognize God as our king. When we follow him like sheep follow a shepherd, we recognize him as our loving caretaker who will lead us by still waters, 
who will protect us in the valley of the shadow of death, who will be there through thick and thin and will guide us on proper paths. Our worship is a function of that. You come here to hear the Word of God, to hear what God would have us do, to receive instruction about the work that He calls us to perform. So when do we worship? We worship the one true God. We worship Him with a joyful, humble, submissive noise of joy. When do we worship? When do we do these things? The psalmist gives us two indicators. So if you want to put something on your calendar, you need, you need these two little indicators of when this worship takes place. And the first indicator is uh, that last little bit of verse 7. Today, if you hear His voice. Worship always takes place in the today of hearing Worship is always responsive, first of all. That is to say, it is always a response to God's prior communication with us. If you want to know what kind of a nifty way to think about worship, if you're trying to teach your kids, what are, you do, what are we doing here? What are we doing in the worship service? Why do I have to stand up and confess these old, old, old words? Why do I have to stand up and sing this song with a cadence that's not really modern or not? You know, why do I have to do all of these things? What am I doing? What you're doing is you're... you're in the throne room of God, having a conversation with the king. And it is always God who starts that conversation. Worship is a response to God speaking to us in worship. We are sheep, and sheep are, do not speak unless spoken to. But here is the joy. It's the joy of truth and grace in the gospel. It's the joy of God's kindness to us. He has spoken. He has called us to worship. And he has called us to worship with his word, through his servant, Jesus Christ. When do we worship? We worship, first of all, in the today of hearing God's word. That is to say, all the time. Because the word of God is always present among us, especially in this Sabbath time when he calls the people of God to worship his name. When all the time, but particularly in Sabbath worship. This time in which we are called as the body. See, you worship God in private all the days of your life. You worship God in your thoughts and your deeds and your words, the way in which you raise your children, the way in which you operate at work. All of that we can properly call a form of worship. But particularly, God has blessed this time in which the people that He has gathered has gathered for this purpose, to praise His name, to hear from Him, to sing songs of joy, songs of lament, songs of hope. This time is particularly blessed by God for drawing us up out of ourselves, out of our situation, out of the wilderness, and reminding us that we have a heavenly tabernacle, one in which Jesus Christ sits enthroned. There's another marker, though. When do we worship? We worship in the today of hearing of the Word of God. But this psalm also reflects on the dark side of worship. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa, 
in the wilderness. Worship always takes place, this side of glory, in the wilderness, in a time of testing. It's a time in which we hear the Word of God, but we hear the Word of God in the present wilderness wandering that is a constant and ever-present test of our faith, trial of our faith. The two events that the psalmist is referring to here, uh, Meribah and Massa, you can read about those instances in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20. I'm going to leave that to you for, for homework, but you actually know the story. It, it's really, a re- the referent point here is the whole wilderness experience. And Israel, which we've been hearing about from Eric in the morning service, Israel is constantly looking to that wilderness experience as both a unique time in its life, but also as a, as a kind of type, right? You have those experiences in your life, you have those trials or those stories that you tell one another, and, and you recognize that on the one hand, that was a unique time in your life, having your first child, getting married, college. It's a unique time, and yet at the same time, you, you look back at that time, and that time becomes a kind of type of things to come. It reminds you, and you're constantly referring back to it, oh, that was, that's like that of, that, what happened to me back in college. That's like what happened to us when we had our first child. You, you look at those times as formative times, and you remember them as, as memorials, patterns, instances. And the wilderness functions like that for Israel. When Israel hits a time of trial and trouble, it reflects on that trial and trouble as a kind of wilderness experience. Why is this important? This psalm, which probably arose in the time of exile, in the time in which Judah is called to faithfulness, called to worship when there is no temple, called to citizenship when there is no Jerusalem, the wilderness becomes a kind of touch point That's like it was. Life now is like it was when we were in the wilderness. And in the New Testament, this trend is continued. The author of Hebrews, he looks at the whole Christian life. He looks at everything that's taken place from the cross, reflecting on the time period between that that event, the cross, and Christ's resurrection from it, and that final moment of glory when all things will be redeemed and heaven and earth will pass away and a new heavens and a new earth will drop down. He's trying to frame a way to think about the entirety of that intervening time between the first and second resurrection, and he calls it a wilderness. You are like those who wander in the wilderness. When do we worship? We worship when God calls us in the midst of our wilderness wandering. This is, this is a huge help to us in our Christian lives because you come here tired. You come here burdened with sin. You co- Worship does not take place when everything is fitting together and you've got all your ducks in a row. If you're tired and you're struggling with sin and, and, and you're frustrated with the people around you and you, you feel like things are not quite right, the proper response is worship. Some of us struggle with this, right? You struggle with this fact that 
well, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like worship today. I'm too tired. There's too much conflict in the church. There are too many people I don't like. The music isn't quite to my tastes. The preacher is terrible and boring. You know, whatever it is. And we say, well, I will worship when those things are fixed. I will worship. I'm at my best in worship when the people love me and I love them. When the Word of God is exciting to me. When I'm at the top of my game in the Christian life. And the reminder of this psalm is sometimes those things happen. Sometimes it all fits together and you have that transcendent mountaintop experience. But the normal reality of worship is not that mountaintop experience. It's this. It's ordinary. And it takes place in the midst of, in the middle of, it breaks into all of the struggles of life. We worship in the wilderness, not when all things are fixed, not when the king returns, but now. And the beauty of that is that when we worship in the wilderness, God gives us a glimpse of that which is to come. Worship is an oasis in the wilderness. It is rest ahead of time. We have an example of this. We have an example of this very fact in Jesus Christ. Remember, the first thing after, if you want a a good passage to look at here, Matthew 4. God pronounces upon Jesus this blessing, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God is calling in his baptism, his son, to a life of service that will end in the cross. And the first thing that Jesus does is wander in the wilderness. He's tempted in the wilderness by the devil himself, by all of the various temptations with with which we are subject. Weakness of the flesh, of the body, temptation to sin, all under the curse that this world has experienced. Jesus is tempted. And that final temptation by Satan is bow down and worship me. That's the temptation that we are all tempted with in the wilderness. The temptation that the wilderness has to offer is this, turn aside, turn aside from the pillar, turn aside from the smoke, turn aside from the tabernacle and return to Egypt. Bow down and worship these other gods. There's plenty to choose from. One who will suit your greatest desire. The life of faith says, no, I will worship God alone. Jesus Christ, in the midst of that temptation, says, no, for the word says, God alone will we worship. We come to his throne and we will worship no other, for no other will satisfy, no other will bring us on, no other will give us rest. The alternative to worship is to wallow. We are called to worship. We are called to worship God. We are called to worship Him with a joyful noise, even in the midst of our wilderness wanderings, which bring suffering upon us and which tempt us to turn aside. But we are called to worship lest we wallow. 
For 40 years I loathed that generation. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Israel failed to worship in the wilderness. They failed to keep faith with God. They failed to bow the knee and to be subject. So they wandered. That's the alternative. Notice, first of all, that this command to worship lest we wander, lest we wallow, this command is given to us as Christians. I've already reflected that atheism is no help here, that uh, service to other gods uh, is no help here. You will wallow in restlessness as well. But notice here the contrast is not between being a Christian and not being a Christian. This is a call that is given to the people of God. It's a call that is given to those who have named the name of Christ. You, the decision is set before you today, in the day of God's hearing. Will you worship or will you wander? The contrast is not between worship and not worship, but between worship, two types of worship, worship that is in fullness and in truth and in the Spirit, and worship that is double-minded and fickle and puts God to the test. What does that second kind of worship look like? The worship that ends in wallowing and restlessness. What is that contrast to two biblical worship? The worship that ends in wallowing fails to fear God above all gods. It is always hedging its bets. It's always serving God for the sake of some other pleasure, some other good, some other thing to be honored. Notice how the author puts it. It's very similar if you've been with us in James. It's very similar to the way James puts it when he talks about the double-minded man, asking in faith versus asking in self-interest and pride. It says in the psalm that they put me to the test, they put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. The, a faithless worship is a worship that flows out of a kind of idea of what have you given me lately? The doubt that we're talking about is not the doubt that we normally struggle with. It's not just this question that in our sin we kind of normally address. It, it's the doubt of double-mindedness. It's the doubt of what I really want today is my emotional needs met. What I really want from church is this problem fixed. Advice on how to get rid of this area which is causing me pain and trouble in my life. What I really want is for God to fix what is broken. It is not wrong to want God to fix what is broken. It is wrong to worship in order to get God to fix what is broken. That is double-mindedness. It's half-hearted worship. And the joy that flows from that kind of worship doesn't flow no matter what. As Job said, will we receive good from the Lord and not evil? It flows, that kind of worship only results in joy when God meets that need that I think that I have. In contrast, true biblical worship, as 1 Peter puts it, results in a kind of joy even in the midst of the wilderness, even in the midst of suffering, even when things aren't fixed. 
this kind of worship which puts God to the tests ends in restless wandering, hardening of the heart. The result of this kind of worship is an increased tendency to look to God only for my special wants and needs as a kind of trading post. And the result is, is that we are increasingly enamored with the other gods around us who will never satisfy. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God gives you over, and your failure to worship Him gives you over to the God of your heart, which will never, never satisfy, which will never bring rest. Why? Because all the other gods of this world, though they might flourish for a time, will be absorbed and conquered in death. So, this psalm gives us two alternatives. First, we may choose, in the context of our worship, an easy drifting into spiritual depression. Worship is fought for. Worship is a fight that takes place in the wilderness. It's a battle against the world and the flesh and the devil and it takes place in the midst of enemies who are at their strongest when they are trying to get you to turn aside and to turn back from Egypt. Worship, true biblical worship, is not this easy thing that just happens to happen because my heart is in the right place. Worship is work. It's the opposite of rest. Though it brings rest to us, worship takes work. It takes work to get there. You've been on vacation this summer, you know that. It takes work to be able to rest. You have to plan ahead. You have to schedule everything in order so that no one will uh, contact you or bother you while you're resting. Worship is, the rest that is a rest that takes work. It takes planning. The alternative to which is an easy drifting into hardness of heart, into restless anxiety. And Hebrews tells us eventually into just fear of judgment. The other alternative is to follow the example of Christ and fight the hard fight for wholehearted, full-voiced worship. Christ is the center of this task. If you want to know, how do I get there? How do I fight that fight? What is the armor that I have? What are the weapons that I can use in order to fight that fight in the wilderness, the fight of faith to persevere and worship on the way? Remember, keep Christ the center. Remember Christ. What does the psalmist say? Great things he has done. The Lord is a great God and a king above all gods. He's the rock of our salvation. Remember that Christ fought to worship. He was tempted again at the Garden of Gethsemane. Would he bow the knee? Would he subject himself to the will of God or to his own desires to the temptation of Satan? Would he turn back or would he continue deeper into the wilderness, into a greater testing, severed from his heavenly Father? And he chose to worship. He chose to worship at the cross. Christ is the example for us of what it looks like to persevere in the wilderness through the darkest of days, and to worship. 
and he's the pattern for us as well that all worship, that that persevering struggle ends in glory. For the joy set before me endured the cross. He worshiped here on earth. He bowed the knee. He, he humbled himself before the God so that he could worship all the more in heaven, in that heavenly tabernacle, seated at the right hand of God the Father, praising his name and his work, opening the seven seals, opening the scroll, and executing the great plan of salvation for all the world. That is what Jesus Christ has done, and it is his work of worship, and it is a reminder to us that even in our wanderings, we are able to worship because Christ has obtained the end of our faith. Remember the deeds of Christ and follow his example. Why do you struggle with half-hearted worship? Why do we struggle week after week to worship? What is your personal sin that draws you down? Maybe it's, maybe it's people. You don't like the people around you. You have some conflict with a sister or a brother in Christ. And every time you show up in this place, it reminds you of that conflict. Maybe it took place here. Maybe it took place somewhere else, but it reminds you of that division. Follow the example of Christ. He exercised compassion. He forgave. He confronted when necessary. But when his disciples failed in faith, when they failed to pray, he prayed and he continued and he worked, he worked on and he showed mercy and compassion to those who brought him low. Maybe it's circumstances. You know, there's no great event that can't be clouded by terrible circumstances. Maybe you've had a, a birthday party and you thought you should be happy on this great day. Or an anniversary, you thought you should be happy on this great day, but the pressure of your circumstances sapped away your joy at that, that moment, which should have been rest for you, which should have been joy for you. Worship is like that. Our circumstances can weigh us down, a terrible week uh, that, that we just got through, a terrible week to come, whatever it is, it can weigh us down. Remember that in the midst of our circumstances, Jesus Christ obtains the victory and he gives us the perfect means of worship in those moments. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Come to worship and lament. Lament before the Lord. He, he, in worship, receives our struggles, desires to hear them. And if offered in a faithful spirit, if offered as Jesus did with reverence and submission to the will of God, Jesus hears our laments and sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Bring your present suffering with you to worship and put it before the feet of Christ. Or maybe we struggle in worship because of a hardness of heart. We have left worship on the back burner for so long. We are so enamored with our other pleasures, with the, the true joys in life, that we fail to take advantage of what's offered for us in worship. Know that Christ sympathizes with you even then. And what you bring to him in worship at that moment when you realize that it's actually my failure to love 
my failure to want to be here. It's, it's the failure of my own heart, which is sluggish, to love my one true God. Bring to worship your confession. Confess it before Him. He sympathizes with our weaknesses and shows us mercy. That describes you. You want to want to worship. Confess that before the Lord. Because the promise of God is that He redeems even this, even our failure to worship Him. He fills us with His Spirit. He changes our hearts, and He empowers us, preparing us for that greater worship which will take place in glory. Let's pray.